So yeah, I just wanted to uh, welcome Tyson here. Tyson belongs to uh, Dan Jansen's uh, Pine Ridge Community Church. He's spoken here before when I've been on vacation. Unfortunately, I've never got to hear him because I've always, he's always replaced me. And uh, there were some extenuating circumstances this week in which I couldn't uh, be prepared for this Sunday. And so I thought, what am I going to do in the, in the interim? And we, um, so I thought, uh, Tyson and I talked, and he said he'd be willing to come down last minute. So I'm grateful to Tyson. And uh, we, um, we uh, hold the pulpit pretty tightly. We, uh, we make sure that the people who speak here know the, know the truth and, and declare it rightly. And so um, um, we trust Tyson with the Word of God. We've heard him preach before, and Dan and the, the board and the elders of that church give him a, a good thumbs up. So we're grateful for Tyson and the, the work the Lord's done in his life. He, um, he's a, a gentle and quiet man, but he's uh, strong with the Word of God. And so uh, we look forward to him speaking today. And we love topical stuff here, right? We've done, we love like, you know, uh, we did preaching on alcohol. We've done preaching on, uh, should we be obeying the Sabbath still as Christians from the Old Testament times? Are we to, um, you know, what does it mean to store up treasures in heaven? We do all sorts of topical things. And Tyson's preaching on a pretty cool little passage that uh, I don't think I've ever heard anyone speak on before. Have you? Nope. No. I looked yeah. online at a couple thousand sermons and I found one. So. Okay, yeah, it's in the Bible though, just so you know. But it's a passage that uh, is pretty unique and, and Tyson can fill you in of why he chose this uh, going forward. So this is a pretty neat little thing. So Tyson? Alright, verse 23. He went up there from Bethel, and while he was growing up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord, and two she-bears came out of the woods and tore forty-two of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. We can pray quick. Heavenly Father, we are extremely grateful for your word, Father, all of it. And uh, we pray today that as we dive into this, uh, this passage here, an uncommon passage to hear from, uh, a difficult passage to read, Lord, that you'd help us to, uh, to take off, our, to take off any, um, any things that are blocking us from understanding your word, from receiving it, Lord. Help us to see it the way that you want us to see it, Lord, and to... Uh, to learn from it and bring those lessons out into our daily lives, out into work, out into secular friends, relationships, and just to grow us deeper with you. And thank you so much. In your name we pray. Amen. Can you all hear okay? Yeah, you can hear okay? Well, if this passage has you feeling a bit confused or uneasy, well, at least take comfort in knowing that you're not alone. Um, I myself have wrestled with these verses ever since I first became a Christian. They've, uh, they've kind of been like a fly in my suit for the past decade. And I think it's only been in the last year that I've finally come to terms with them. But if we do want to understand what's going on here, we've got to look at the context first. We've got to follow protocol, look at the context. And we'll look at uh, three parties for context before we really dive in. We'll look at Elisha, our main character, the city of Bethel, where this is all happening, and the kids themselves. And uh, let's start out with our main character, Elisha. Who is this guy? 
Well, we're first introduced to him in 1 Kings 19, where he's simply plowing the field with some oxen. There's nothing unusual, nothing special about the guy, and yet God had selected him in verse 16 to be the successor to another prophet, a guy named Elijah, who uh, was kind of like the main prophet of the day. And so from here on out, Elisha travels with Elijah as his attendant. And the travels take him all over Israel, including Bethel here, until eventually Elisha succeeds Elijah in 2 Kings 2, 11 and 12. And now that's only about 11 verses before our passage here. It's really important to keep that in the back of our minds as we dive in. This bear attack happened just moments, well, just very, very soon after Elisha had taken over the mantle. And as far as character goes, this, uh, this might surprise you, but Elisha was actually a really compassionate man. If you just look at the evidence here, he healed people. He fed and released captives of war that otherwise would have been killed. 2 Kings 8.12 shows him weeping over Israel because he knows that their cities will be burned, young men die by the sword, and get this, little children be dashed to the ground and pregnant women torn open. And when a friend's child dies as a boy, he drops everything to come back to her house and revive him. And uh, that's basically all of 2 Kings 4, if you're taking notes. So Elisha, he clearly didn't just hate all kids. He wasn't a monster. But instead, it's only fair when looking at his whole life to say that he cared deeply for Israelites of all ages. You wouldn't get it from our passage alone, but almost everywhere the guy went, he did something that benefited the people around him. That's his life story. And I think as we dive in further, we'll see this passage become less and less of a black mark on his, his otherwise pristine record. But that's Elisha. Now what about Bethel? What was that city like? Well, funny enough, Bethel actually means house of God. And it's funny because Bethel was actually a sin city almost without compare. It was kind of like the Vegas of its time. Because you see, Bethel was one of two epicenters for Israel's idol worship. You can uh, jot this down if you like, but in 1 Kings 12, verses 25 to 33, there was a former king, a guy named Jeroboam, who had set up a golden cow in Bethel for his people to worship at, rather than have them cross over into neighboring Judah to worship at the Lord's temple in Jerusalem. Now, I read that, and I thought, what is with you Israelites and your golden cows? But, uh, but that's not really important. What's important is that people actually gave up on God and started worshiping this cow. And not just a few people. This cow statue lasted for generations. And 2 Kings 10.29 says that it brought all Israel to sin. Israelite parents from all over turned their backs on the Lord and taught their kids to do the same. They would have taught their kids to worship a man-made image and led them straight into sin. And it's not at all a stretch to say that the people of Bethel were the same. The calf would have actually would have been the pride of the town, to be honest, with its accompanying altars, temples, priests. Bethel was a source of a lot of sin for all of Israel. And so that's Bethel in a nutshell. And as far as the kids go, well, this is the one and only time that they're mentioned in the Bible. 
And so there's not a whole lot of context to them besides the fact that they're from Bethel. However, their age is a bit of a translation sticking point we do need to talk about. Verse uh, 23 of my ESV here describes them as small boys. Other versions, maybe some of the ones you guys might have, might say youth or little children. Some say young lads. And yet about 10% of the translations that I saw would seem to do us a favor here and refer to them as young men. So which is it? Are they young boys or young men? Because if you're like me, young men makes this passage a lot more palatable, a lot easier to handle than small boys. Well, to be sure, it's two words to describe them from verse 23. Katan is the first word, and Na'ar the second. Now, Na'ar can uh, mean anything from a baby all the way to a young man, or it can even mean a servant. So by itself, that doesn't really help us out. But Katan means diminutive in age, size, importance. It essentially means not as significant. So placing Katan in front of Na'ar seemed to push us to think in the direction of young people or small people, kids. And think about this. Separately, both words occur hundreds of times in the Old Testament. But there's only five times where those words are used in conjunction. And one of those times is actually nearby in chapter 5. And you can flip there if you'd like. It's the story of Naaman. He was a man with leprosy. Now, Elisha had cured him of his leprosy. And take a look at what it says in the latter half of verse 14 there. It says, And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. Little child makes sense there. Or how about Isaiah 11.6, where Isaiah is talking about the future that Jesus is going to bring. He says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf, and a little child shall lead them. Every single instance where those two words are put together, it just makes more sense that it means children rather than men. I won't go so far as to say that it can't be translated as young men, but the odds of that seem about as likely as me beating Dex in an arm wrestle. It's not going to happen. Right. And I have another reason why kids make sense, but I'll get into that one a little bit later. So flip it around now. We've been talking about the upper limits of how old they might be, but what about how young they might be? It's pretty safe to say that they weren't infants or toddlers, but let's look at the facts. First, they were old enough to leave their parents and go outside the town. And second, they left on their own initiative too. According to the passage here, mom and dad never pushed the kids to go out and harass Elisha. But they didn't have to, really. They had raised their kids so poorly that the kids felt it was good to insult to his face a godly man just walking down the road. These kids chose to do it themselves. And thirdly, they organized a mob of, at minimum, 42 people. 42 were mobbed, but we don't know how many people were actually there, but it was minimum 42. And they got it out of the city 
on the road to meet Elisha before he even got to the town. We don't know, but maybe they set up a rotation of kids keeping watch to see Elisha and then alert the others. But regardless, as far as how young they might be, we can say that these kids had at least some independence from mom and dad, and they could think and act for themselves. So those are the facts to consider when thinking about how young they are. But now that we've got a little bit of context and we've dealt with that translation issue, let's dive in and actually try and answer the question on everyone's mind. Why did this mob get mauled for making fun of a bald guy? It does seem a bit extreme, doesn't it? I mean, sure, they deserve some kind of punishment, maybe a stern talking to, maybe you're grounded, something, but a mauling, that seems like just some cruel way of God lashing out in anger. Well, I don't think it was actually because of the bald remark that they were punished. It was the, uh, the go up, go up bit that got them into trouble. But now what does that even mean? Well, once again, we have to look at context. This passage here, like all passages really, is all about the context. And so let's take a few, look at a few verse back, verses back to verse 11, where Elijah leaves Elisha. It says, as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Now look at verse 16b, the second half of verse 16. This is, uh, this is a group of godly men talking with Elisha afterwards. They say to him, it may be that the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or some valley. The common understanding of what happened to Elijah was that he went up. So when these kids say to him, go up, go up, what they're really saying is, you know, we know Elijah went up by a whirlwind. Now do us a favor, you bald freak, and get out of here like he did. It was an insult to say that they didn't want anything to do with him. They wanted him to go up just like Elijah. And not so he can enjoy being with God in paradise, just to get him away from them. Now, why would they say that? All the evidence says it's because they hated God, and they hated Elisha for his close connection to God. These kids were raised to be golden calf worshippers, just like their parents, and they didn't want to have anything to do with the true God. They were satisfied with worshipping an idol. But Elisha was all about bringing people back to a proper relationship with God. He was dead set against their beloved idol, and he was trying actually to turn people away from worshiping it. And these kids didn't want that. They loved their idol. And so in simple terms, they chose to hate God, and they chose to show it by hating his servant. Still, why the bear attack? I mean, people reject God all the time, and they aren't punished like this. Why were these 42 so unlucky? Well, I think there's at least two reasons why. One's a strong hunch, and the other one's more for sure. But for the first one, let's remember that Elisha had just become the main prophet of the day. It was only 11 verses ago when he took up Elijah's mantle. And a curious thing happened when he did. 
If you turn back to chapter 2, the beginning of chapter 2, you'll see that those who were sad to see Elijah go were so sad that they didn't actually want to accept it. Take a look at what it says in verses 16 to 18. It says, And they said to him, Behold, now there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please, let them go and seek your master. It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or some valley. And he said, You shall not send. And when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent therefore fifty men, and for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to them, Did I not say to you, do not go? These guys weren't ready to accept that Elijah was really going. And they weren't ready to accept Elisha as his successor. They wanted instead to cling to this false hope that Elijah was still somewhere out there, despite the fact that Elisha himself told him not to go. And he didn't just say it once not to go. In 17, it says that they urged him until he was ashamed. These guys, they constantly nagged him until finally Elisha gave to him. These guys didn't want to accept Elisha as the new main prophet. And let's also remember now that both Elijah and Elisha had been to Bethel before. But the last time they visited Bethel, Elisha didn't receive this same treatment. In fact, it seems like they were left alone. In uh, 2 Kings 2, verses 2 to 4, they essentially say that they passed right through unhindered. Nobody came out and bothered them back then. So why the difference now? Why was Elisha being mocked now that Elijah was gone? Well, back in those verses, Elisha was still merely the attendant to Elijah. He was nothing unusual or special. He didn't have any miracles to his name. Not like Elijah. Elijah. I wish they were Bob and Frank. <laughs> he was nothing unusual or special. Because through God, Elijah had held back the reins, he called down fire from heaven, and he convinced people from all over Israel to kill 450 prophets of Baal, and he revived a dead boy. Elisha, however, had no miracles. He was a nobody. The people of Bethel, they may not have liked Elijah, but it's understandable that they might have some sort of a fear or a reverence towards him. He had actually shown, you know, some real power. And so they left him alone. But now that he's gone and is just his attendant, it's my strong hunch that they felt quite free to go and harass him. Like the former guys sending out their 50 men for three days, these kids thought much of Elijah, but very little of Elisha. And so this bear attack, as hard as it is to read, it did something for Elisha. It cemented him. It fully established him in as the new prophet of God. And it would have generated that same fear and reverence towards him that Elijah would have had. And if you care to read the rest of 2 Kings, you can see how true this really is. People have a whole lot of respect and reverence for him since this attack. And he's no longer living in the shadow of Elijah. He's, he's a prophet in his own right now. So that's the first reason why I think this bear attack happened. And the second reason means flipping to a new passage. If you would, turn to Leviticus 26. 
verses 21 and 22. Leviticus 26, verses 21 and 22. It says, Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins, and I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children, and destroy your livestock, and make you few in number, so that your roads shall be deserted. Now, I looked all over the Old Testament for another example where this might have happened. And I found a couple of animal attacks, to be sure, but nothing about animals attacking children. Not like this. Our passage is it. And now these verses here from Leviticus, they are smack dab in the middle of a chapter talking about a whole lot of punishments in store for the Israelites should they choose to disobey God. The very last punishment being in verse 33, saying that they would uh, be dispersed to the nations and no longer be an independent nation under God's protection. And we, we know, of course, that that happened. The Israelites were exiled to Babylon and Assyria. But the punishments leading up to that one were each meant to turn the Israelites back into a proper relationship with God. You'll uh, notice in verses 18, 21, 23, and 27, how they all say, if you still won't listen to me, or if in spite of this, you still won't listen. It's different words each time, but the same concept. Turn back to me, or I'll unleash a real harsh punishment against you. And these were harsh punishments, no doubt. But they were minuscule in terms of what God could have done. He could have pulled a Thanos and turned all them to dust if he wanted to. I don't know if anyone Avengers fans here, sorry, if you're not. He almost wiped them all out in Moses' day, had it not been for Moses pleading with God not to. And so this bear attack, it affected 42 kids when God could have killed off the whole nation. Or he could have sent them all into exile right away. God didn't have to give these lesser punishments and hope that they'd repent. But in the larger scope of things, this was an act of patience. It was a push to try and bring the Israelite nation in a whole back into a relationship with him. Now you may all be thinking, you know, that's great, Tyson, but what about the age of accountability? Wouldn't these kids have been under 20, the supposed age of accountability? Didn't God say in uh, Numbers 14, in Deuteronomy 1, that anyone who is under the age of 20 would be spared from death in the desert? Yes, he did. God did give extra grace to those who were young. And the same principle, it probably holds true today. But does that mean it's unlimited grace? And just because it happened that one time, does that mean that it is now the standard rule until the end of time? I mean, Deuteronomy 1.39 also describes the kind of people these were. It wasn't just people under 20, it was people under 20 who didn't know the difference between right and wrong. These kids from 2 Kings, however old they were, they demonstrated an active hatred towards Elisha, the man of God. Without their parents pushing them, they chose, on their own, to get together a mob of who knows how many and leave the city with the sole purpose to try and get rid of the man of God. 
And then they insulted him to his face when they met him outside the town. It's quite clear that they had chosen not to love the Lord. In all of this, despite the numerous miracles Elijah had done beforehand to demonstrate the, uh, the supremacy of God, despite the warnings in Leviticus 26 that we just read, despite the gradual fulfillment of those warnings, these kids wanted to worship their idols and have nothing at all to do with God. They'd already decided this in their own hearts. God can't stand evil, no matter the age. One more cross-reference here. Flip with me to Deuteronomy 21, verses 18 to 21. Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 21. They say, If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and mother shall take him to the elders of the city at the gate of the place where he lives, and they shall say to the elders of the city, This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. This son was still young enough to be under his parents' discipline. You know, we may like to think that there's a hard, fast number like 20, but we can't actually affirm that. God alone knows the hearts of every man and woman, and he knows when a person is to be held accountable for their actions. We can't know when people know better, when they've developed understanding, or when they've chosen to turn their backs on him indefinitely. But God can. And we need to trust that God is executing proper justice and proper judgment on people, no matter their age. He knows us better than we even know ourselves. So then isn't he the perfect one to execute a righteous judgment? Now, before I close, there's just one more thing I'd like to say. I've learned a lot from this passage now that I've taken the time to get back into it again. And, uh, I mentioned at the beginning that I'd wrestled with this passage for almost a decade. Well, I also didn't ask for help. And I actually wound up pretending like the passage didn't exist. I, uh, I figuratively blocked it out of my Bible. And now there's many, many tough passages but we can't just pretend like they don't exist. You do that and you start poking holes in God. You Swiss cheese him until all that's left is just a mangled excuse for a God that you might like, but that doesn't actually deserve to be worshiped. So don't ignore those tough passages. Look into them. And if you still struggle, ask for help. Ask a friend, a, a small group leader, an elder, a pastor, a parent, you know, there's, there's a lot of wisdom in the group of believers. So I encourage you to exploit it for all its worth. So I have a few lessons here for us, and I do hope to talk about them and whatever you, thoughts you might have afterwards. If you have any thoughts, you may not. Lesson number one. Evil and wicked people, despite their age, are still accountable for what they do. Evil and wicked people, despite their age, are still accountable 
for what they do. And you can cross-reference uh, 2 Kings 2, 23 to 25, and Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 21. Lesson number two. God may give out small punishments in the hopes of repentance before giving out a big one. God may give out small punishments in hopes of repentance before giving out a big one. Now that, that really rings true to me. I have two, uh, two little kids at home. And uh, I don't want to just go immediately to the spanking. I want to get, hopefully start with a stern voice and then maybe ramp it up a little bit to something, um, maybe a little tiny little slap on the hand before we go to a full spanking and then a timeout. I want to give out small punishments. And it seems to make sense that God, as a loving father, doesn't want to just go straight for the harsh punishment right away. So I'll read it once more. God may give out small punishments in hopes of repentance before giving out a big one. And you can cross-reference Leviticus 26, verses 14 to 46. And lesson number three, just parent your kids well. You can, some cross-references, we didn't look at them, but uh, they're really good anyways. 1 Timothy 3, verse 4, which essentially says, keep your kids submissive and manage your house well. And Titus 1, 6, which essentially says, keep your kids uh, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So, that's all I got. Anyone have anything they want to say? Any thoughts, any questions?